Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us today Arthur Brooks. He has been with us before, and he's with us again. He currently has appointments at Harvard University's Kennedy School and in the Harvard Business School. Before that, he was the very successful president of the American Enterprise Institute. His books include Love Your Enemies. That was our topic uh, a couple of years ago. Also, The Conservative Heart. And uh, a title I like, Gross National Happiness. Uh, the new book is From Strength to Strength, Finding Success, Happiness, and Deep Purpose in the Second Half of Life. And that is our topic today. Welcome, Professor Brooks. Thank you, Mark. What a delight to be with you. Great, great. Well, uh, you, uh, you, you, before getting into the text proper, you have an epigraph from the Psalms. Is the book of Psalms important to you? It is. I'm. I mean, it's important to me as a as a Christian man, um, but it's also important to me to to help me understand philosophically how I should be thinking about the whole subject of life and happiness. Um, you know that it, you can read the Psalms and kind of go no further practically, but also it informs a lot of the, the great thinking that reaches us today about the way that we see the world. And and so I start with the 84th Psalm. Um, that that's that in has this this wonderful Hebrew blessing that in Hebrew is Michael Chael, which means may you go from strength to strength. <laughs> what a wonderful blessing that is, and, and would it be true in all of our lives? There we are. There there's the title. And I think uh, a lot of people are gonna want to hear about that second half of second half of life, which is not certainly not as as common a topic as as, you know, Finding your passion when you're 25, <laughs> things things like this. Yeah. But uh, you, you you begin with an episode on an airplane with a very aged couple. What happened there? Well, it's some years ago, I was still the president of AEI in those days, flying around, feeling important, or at least feeling quite put upon. And it was a kind of a night. It was a night flight coming back from Los Angeles to Dulles. I remember it pretty distinctly. And behind me, I heard a couple having a conversation on the plane. It was dark, so I couldn't see them exactly, but I could tell by their voices that it was a man and a woman and they were elderly. And the husband was telling the wife that he might as well be dead, that nobody remembered him, that the world had passed him by, nobody appreciated him anymore. And his wife was trying to console him. And I thought, wow, this is just awful. This is somebody obviously who, you know, he's disappointed with his life. He probably hasn't lived up to his own potential. And we got to Dulles Airport and after an hour or so and everybody, the lights went on and everybody stood up and I was curious and I turned around and it was literally one of the most famous men in the world for achievements many decades past. And I thought to myself, well, I got some thinking to do. I mean, I'm a social scientist. I, you know, I'm, I'm dedicated to, I mean, I've written books about the science of happiness at this point. I thought, what is it about the trajectory of success that tells us that if we achieve everything we want in life, like this guy behind me on the plane, that we'll be permanently happy and can dine out on it. And yet somebody like this is deeply unhappy. Is that normal? Is that 
an exception to the rule. And I started studying this phenomenon. I found that no strivers, you know, the people who, who work so hard to be as, as successful as they can possibly be, they're more likely than people who didn't to actually find disappointment at the end of their lives. So I asked myself, what are they doing wrong? What's, what's, what's wrong in the investments in their happiness 401k? And how can we build a better happiness portfolio? And I think I found the answer. I worked on this for eight years for, for myself. I didn't intend to publish this in the book. I intended this, I mean, this is me search, not research. I thought, you know, what, what is it that actually goes into the happiness patterns of people who do truly do get happier as they get older? And I found that they all do basically seven things. And that's the subject of this book is the things that we all need to do to have, build a happiness 401k that we can count on and where we could be happier at 75 than we were at 25. And, and let me say to our listeners that what you put together here with with these 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 elements is really a, a a very highly readable, fluid, and fascinating trail that actually combines the the anecdote, you know, the personal style, the more meaning, with some real, genuine, good, hard scientific empirical evidence, uh, ranging ranging widely, but very persuasively, I'll say, such as the evidence that you you talk about with with certain you know forms of cognitive ability that were a little surprising to me as uh, yeah. as I read but we'll we'll, we'll get yeah. into that so you, you mentioned the strivers curse the strivers curse is you know people who really achieve a lot when they're young are kind of you know is, is it all just anticlimactic when they're old is, is this the curse well p- part of it is that we have a tendency to think uh, that mo- the modern world and our you know our brains conspire against us to tell us that if we actually achieve all of our worldly goals, that we will be permanently satisfied and happy as a result of it. And it's obviously not true. I guess your grandmother could have told you it's not true, but, but we always feel like it probably will be. And the trouble is that people who do a lot with their lives, they have a tendency to notice when they're not doing as much. You know, if you look, if you never do anything with your life, you're not going to know when it's over. But if you, you climb the curve, you strive, you struggle, you work hard, when there is any sort of decline, it's going to be that much more painful. And so the first thing I asked is, you know, how do we understand that? Why do we do it? And how can we defeat it? And, and the main answer to that is that, that basically we, we don't just get one curve of success. The people who are really unhappy, they, they, do, re- they do a lot. They, they work hard. They, they get ahead. And they don't know that there's a second success curve lurking behind their first success curve, but it requires humility. It requires learning. It requires going from hard work and cognitive horsepower to wisdom, to understanding not how to answer everybody's questions and work harder than everybody else, but to, to actually move to the, the answer to the question, what questions should be answering in the first place? And, and I, I walk through that process and I give examples of people who've done it. So the first piece of knowledge is self-knowledge. Where am I? What have my goals been? How can I get from the first curve to the second curve? And, and often it really means a complete change of, of ambition, focus. I mean, the things that you work on, correct? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the key thing is that when you're young, to be successful, this is what psychologists, social psychologists call the fluid intelligence that you have, which you have in abundance in your 20s and 30s. And this is what makes it possible for you to solve problems faster than others, to work harder than other people, to when your hard work and study pays off, in a big way early on in life, it's your fluid intelligence that you can thank, plus, you know, your parents and, you know, good values and maybe a little bit of good luck. 
Well, what happens is that that fluid intelligence tends to start to decline, mostly in your 40s. And, and this is what happens when people say, you know, I just don't like my job as much as I used to. And the reason is because it's not that fun to do something that's getting harder as opposed to getting easier. And then they, they get kind of burned out and they don't know, especially if they're really addicted to their worldly success. Success addiction is something I talk about a lot in this book, which is a real problem and a real phenomenon. And then they just kind of ride it down into the cellar and feel bummed out about it for a pretty long time. What they need to understand is that there's a second curve called the crystallized intelligence curve that's starting to increase in your 40s and 50s, and it stays very high in your 60s and 70s. And that's really all about your wisdom, all about your teaching ability, all about your ability to synthesize information and pass it on to other people. So if you're an executive, you should go from the hot shot sort of cowboy CEO to somebody who puts together teams. Instead of the, 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 the young litigator who can crack cases, you should go to the managing partner that's managing people um, to their highest and greatest success. You should go from the innovator to the instructor. And, and that's what I talk about exactly how to do that and why the brain science shows that that, in fact, is most consistent with the data on people who get happier and more successful as they age. And, and so the situation that you, you mentioned a moment ago where you're, you're in a job, you're doing very well, but somehow you know, in the 40s it doesn't quite do it for you. You're not as happy in that job. That to interpret that as is often the case, as a midlife crisis. You know, this just wasn't really, really me. I devoted myself. That's a misinterpretation, right? It's, it's you've changed. You yeah, could have been exactly doing right. all the right thing when you were 30. Just if you're 45 and it's not satisfying you, that doesn't cancel out what happened before. You've changed, yeah? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly right. And most people don't understand the structure of their brain is changing as they go through their 40s and 50s. And when they're trying to keep doing what they did before, they're going to be in a pretty big crisis. They're going to, and, and if they let it go for years and years and years, by the time they get into their old age, they're going to feel pretty disappointed about the fact that the party ended a long time ago. And yet it's completely, absolutely avoidable. There's nothing inevitable about this. We just have to let ourselves change. And, and part of that means we have to look at the blockages, make it harder for, to make changes, like the success addiction, for example, or the loneliness that people have built up around them, or just the, the, the unwillingness to face any sort of new thing, any sort of new challenge and let the past go. And so I talk about all the ways that people who've been successful doing this have done it in their lives and how all of us can do it as well. Yeah. You, you get, I'm, I'm going to ask you a personal question because you, you get personal. Yep. In the book, you describe yourself. You're, you're perfectly willing to, to lay, lay yourself out there. You were a superb French horn player, playing professionally at the tender age of, of 20 years old. What, uh, what happened with that career? Well, that career ended un, pretty unceremoniously, and I, and I could never quite understand why. I was a I was, I was in decline much earlier than other people were. Ordinarily, classical musicians, they tend to find that their best years, technically and musically, occur in their late 30s. That's generally speaking when you see your peak. And that, by the way, that's the peak for financial advisors. That's generally the peak for teacher, I mean, for, for, for surgeons, for lawyers. Teachers come much, much later because that's a crystallized intelligence field. But all of these analytic capacity types of things and, and where you need a lot of need a lot of motor skills you find that in usually about late 30s my peak came when i was about 21 years old so i had started on this career i went pro when i got tossed out of college at 19 and and went on the road as a classical musician and things were going just really well and about 21 i noticed 
that after about 21, I noticed that things that used to be easy were hard. Things that used to be hard were impossible. And, and I struggled for a long time trying to get my groove back. As a matter of fact, I struggled until I was 31 until I finally kind of gave up and snuck away. And just, I felt really ashamed about it. Really, I mean, I went and got my PhD and became a social scientist, but I always felt like kind of a loser, as a matter of fact. And even now, it's sort of hard to talk about, believe it or not, because that was my first love and my first dream. And uh, boy, boy, the if there's a I don't I don't, I don't want to say self help because this book is I mean this is a real book a lot of intellectual material and everything but uh, in a way you are offering your struggle your pain as an an object lesson for other people uh, sometimes you're fighting something that again is is. Well, it's just sort of the natural course of things within you. And yeah. no, absolutely. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, now, now why? Uh, I mean, this is, uh, this is Stein's law at work, correct? We, 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 people, <laughs> yeah. people have a very hard time. Well, why do people resist accepting Stein's law? Well, Stein's Law says, as probably everybody who listens to the First Things podcast knows, Herb Stein was the great economist who, who was at the American Enterprise Institute long before I was the president, who said that things that can't continue forever won't. <laughs> so it's pretty axiomatic that this is going to be the case. But we, we don't know when forever is, and we don't know what the time horizon is, and we might as well just sort of ignore the inevitable because, you know, the trend is your friend, basically. And so the idea of, of walking away from something that's going to finish, but you don't know quite when it's going to, it seems foolish. You know, we're always told, by the way, not to waste resources and not to waste resources in ourselves. But what that does is it effectively it chains us to the, the inevitable, giving us a heartbreak. I mean, it's, it's a, a great CEO one time told me, you know, when I was a president of AEI, and I said, how do I know when to stop? He said, Sonny boy, you got two you got two options here. You can quit before you're ready or you can leave on somebody else's terms. <laughs> and I thought well, I thought that's good. man, oh man, that's a pretty bad set of choices, but there really is only one choice, which is to quit before you're ready because otherwise you're going to get a push and we've all seen this for people who hang on to that fluid intelligence curve even though it's getting worse and worse and they don't like it as much and they're burned out, but people start to see that they're off their game and it's it's just it's it's not pretty to look at. But all of us armed with this knowledge that the better curve is behind it, the crystallized intelligence curve, which is more satisfying, more giving, leads you to greater humility and lends itself much more to walking the spiritual path. It's all about going from money, power, pleasure, honor, which are the idols that St. Thomas Aquinas always talked about, to the, to the true sources of satisfaction and happiness, which are faith, family, friendship, and work that serves other people. Boy, oh boy, I mean, what's not to love? But people don't quite trust, and they're a little afraid. And, and one of the things that you highlight there is that one of the things that improve with age actually is, is a skill, uh, if, you want to, if you want to put it that way, but it's, it's your vocabulary, your oratory, your, your speech. These actually yeah. get better as you, as you get older. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. You should be a better and better podcaster, Mark, as you get older. I mean, you've got the best years ahead of you on, this pod, on the first thing podcasting. You know, it, it's interesting at my university, the best, the best teaching evaluations, they tend to go toward people in their 70s, as a matter of fact. You know, you just always take the oldest professors you could possibly can because they're very good at assembling ideas 
and verbalizing, synthesizing the ideas and expressing them in a way that people can understand very, very quickly. It's amazing, Mark, when I think back on you know, the papers that I was writing as, a, as, a, as an economist in my, in my early and mid-30s, early on when I was in graduate school doing my PhD, I would come out, I can't even read the math of the stuff that I was doing in those days. I was using something called genetic algorithms to model public finance regimes. Ugh. I probably had 10 readers in the whole world. And, and now I'm a better teacher than I've ever been. I mean, I can write things that I, I wouldn't have dreamed of being able to write about relatively complex topics and breaking them down in a way that people can use them. And the reason is because I'm on my crystallized intelligence curve, fully on it, and I'm happier than I've ever been. One of the things, very good, one of, one of the things that interferes with this kind of happiness you found is a certain form of, and you use the word, addiction. People genuinely yeah. become addicted to success. What, what, are the, what, are the, uh, what are the characteristics of that addiction, and, and how do we kick it? Well, all addictions have one big thing, one neurobiological thing in common, which is the neuromodulator called dopamine. Now, almost everybody listening to us is pretty familiar with dopamine. It's, the, it's a neurotransmitter implicated in, not in pleasure, but in desire and in anticipation of pleasure. And so this is the thing that makes you want to smoke a cigarette, something that makes you want to see your beloved, even though your beloved no longer loves you. And, you know, the heartbreak that actually comes from that, and it drives to a kind of insanity, people who are addicted to methamphetamines, for example. But, you know, dopamine really will drive you to all sorts of compulsive and repetitive behaviors so that you can get the reward that your brain is so accustomed to, kind of hit the lever, get the reward over and over again. Now, we're all in our own ways, like monkeys on cocaine, for the things that we like, where we're, we're getting the dopamine hits. For people who are strivers, people who are really successful, particularly professionally, these people have self-objectified and become a little bit less than human. They see themselves as, as excellent success machines. And a lot of people listening to us are going to say, wow, I remember when I was a kid, my parents told me I was the special one. I was the intelligent one. I was the hardworking one. And I started to see myself that way. And, and then the reward that you get that starts to stimulate the dopamine is, is success. You know, is the, the cookie is is good grades or, or getting a raise or admiration of other people, getting the A's, being the perfect one over and over again. And this is a pattern of behavior that can be quite compulsive and people don't recognize it even into their adult lives. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you are looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy, all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. You also speak of, of, of a fear, right? Success addicts. The, you know, beneath all, 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 the, all the, the energy, there's also a lurking fear. What, what is that? Well, fear of failure is a terrible thing for strivers in particular, and for really, really for all of us, because we feel like, you know, it's, it's interesting. The research shows that we're actually not afraid of what happens if we fail. We're afraid of how we will feel if we fail. 
And most of us are quite afraid of the feelings that are, that, are, that are associated with failure. And so most of the cognitive behavioral therapy that goes into this means you have to envision the fail, the failure and feel those feelings and realize that they're not scary. And this is one of the reasons that entrepreneurs who are successful on average have had 3.8 failures behind them already. They need the experience of actually failing so they no longer have the fear, and that sets them free to be successful. The same thing is true, by the way, for people who have a successful romance, is that they have had you know, a bunch of heartbreaks before, and they know how to conduct themselves. They've learned from those particular failures and getting beyond the fear of those failures, so they're no longer hamstrung. Well, this is the problem that we have in, in our lives in general. As we go through life, we don't want to get off that first success curve because that feels like failure to walk away from something to admit defeat, to let people see that we have feet of clay like anybody else. We're horribly, horribly afraid of that. And yet dealing with that fear of failure, showing weakness is one of the most satisfying, intensely interesting, fun things that we can possibly do. You can never get peace in your life as long as you're holding yourself up as somebody special, somebody better than others, somebody who really will always succeed. And, and once you actually show the weaknesses that it's attendant in everybody's lives. I mean, I've seen people's lives change dramatically for the better simply because they were willing to become fully human for the first time. I, I, I would say that when, when I read that passage, when you were talking about failing, you got to fail. It's good for you to fail. If you never fail, you were going to pay for it much worse when, when, when the failure eventually comes. I think that was one another one of those little pieces of practical wisdom that, that, that enables people to put what happens to them uh, into, into just a, a, a wiser a wiser context in their life. Now, for, you know, we, we take this kind of this addiction, this achievement and then facing failure. How does the story of some guy named Bach fit into that? An, an older Bach fit into this yeah. pattern. Bach was, as a classical musician, was my favorite composer. Um, he's a lot of people's favorite composer. That doesn't distinguish me, especially. Johann Sebastian Bach was born in 1685 to a, a, an incredible family of multi-generational family of composers. The greatest composers in Central Europe were, many of them were Bach's. And, and Bach was, Johann Sebastian Bach, the great composer we know today, was the best of them all. I mean, he was the greatest innovator of the high Baroque period. People sought him out. He was able to play on the organ, things that were unplayable. And he wrote music that princes would pay for dearly and did. And, and you know, his life couldn't have gone better. By the way, he was also, you know, a, a, so deeply uh, committed to his Christian faith. And uh, he would mark up his family Bible. And he wrote oratories and, and, and cantatas for every, uh, every Sunday in the church here. They just fell off his tent. He's known often as the fifth evangelist. So beautiful is his work and so deep is his Christian faith. But about age 50, he hit a wall and couldn't write new music anymore that was at the cutting edge of the musical styles because musical styles changed. Ushered in, by the way, by his own son, Carl Philip Emanuel Bach, which brought not the high Baroque style, but the new classical, newfangled style of music. And he couldn't keep up. He just couldn't write in the style. It was, it was like he was stuck writing disco or something that, that you know, nobody wanted to listen to anymore. And instead of railing against his decline and feeling aggrieved and angry about it, he actually retooled himself as a great teacher. He dedicated himself to being 
really the greatest teacher of his age, as a matter of fact. And, and, and he was less famous and a little less rich, but he was beloved. He was a great teacher. And unwittingly, he had jumped from his fluid intelligence curve to his crystallized intelligence curve. He died writing a textbook, a textbook called The Art of Fugue. That was, a, it was fugues and canons in the old style, such that somebody might understand them, might appreciate them in the future. He wrote them for posterity, basically. He literally died mid-measure in a composition. His, his son, who had supplanted him, wrote in the margins. At this point, the composer put down his pen and died, which is an unbelievably strong finish. And today, we play that work not as a text work. We play it as, as, as concert music. I mean, imagine writing a textbook so beautiful that people read it as literature. That's what he was doing. But he didn't know. He'd just gone from great composer to great teacher. This was the, the quintessential act of getting happier as you get older by defeating your success addiction, building your, your, your network of love around you, taking away all of the vanities and the conceits that are attendant on these early successes. And and quite frankly, getting happier as you get older. He was happier when he died at 65, arguably, than he had been at his greatest success at 40. Hmm. What is the, quote, reverse bucket list? This is one of the things that the happiest the older people do, which is basically to, to stop adding to their lives and start taking things away from their lives. Not such that... I guess the best way to think about it is that they, they change the metaphor for their life. Early on, their life is like a canvas that they're filling up with brush strokes. Later on, their life is more like a sculpture that they're chipping away to find the sculpture within. And, and the happiest people, they, they, they start getting as serious about subtracting things from their lives as they are about adding things to their lives. And, and this has remarkable, remarkable effects on their lives. So the reverse bucket list is one way to think about this. Where I was told that if you want to be ambitious and successful, you need a list of things that you want to do with your life and, and, and write them down on your birthday. And there's your attachments and your cravings. You know, I want to ride in a hot air balloon. I want to go bungee jumping in the Mekong Delta. I want to make a million dollars a year, whatever it is, right? What you really need, especially as you age, and by the way, at any age, because the sooner you start your happiness 401k, the more is going to be in it by the time you get older, that it is to think of a reverse bucket list, to make a list of your cravings and sticky attachments and detach yourself from them and detach them yourself from them consciously because you can do these things consciously to say, I'm not going to be a slave to this anymore. I'm just not going to I, I, I'm not going to tell myself that I won't be happy if I don't make a bunch of money because I know that that's actually not true. The reverse bucket list is a cognitively tremendously powerful tool, and I, I strongly recommend it. Yeah, I, I would I would urge uh, again our our listeners to uh, to take a lot of what you say in the book as practice. This is this is building building habits. Um, so you, you, one of the practices you push in Chapter 5, which has the title, Ponder Your Death. This will not lead to dread and depression. Yes? Absolutely not. I mean, it's, it's something that people find scary, to say the least, because looking at the, the source of your, of your fear can be a really frightening thing to do. Now, most people listening to us are not afraid of death, but we're all afraid of something. And the thing that we're afraid of, especially if it's irrelevance or being forgotten or becoming less successful, that's your own fear of death. Because, you know, whatever it is, the thing you're worried about losing is your version of your life. And so confronting the fear of death 
which every religious tradition has done. Um, the Buddhists have a famous uh, meditation called the Maranasati meditation, which is a, to, con- to contemplate your death explicitly, to make it less scary, to make it more familiar, is to get beyond that. And what I recommend to my students at Harvard, by the way, they're all very afraid of failure, for example, or rejection or irrelevance or not being appreciated. I ask them to write a version of this Buddhist Maranasati meditation where they're contemplating in nine parts their worst fears. And so doing, they're looking straight at the fears and, and it's just the exposure therapy is like, they're free. Many of them will say after doing it for two weeks, they'll say, I feel free for the first time in my life. And it's been really helpful for me too. You know, it's also helped me to concentrate on what really matters. You know, I'm a Christian man and, and I think an awful lot about, you know, what God wants for me. I know for sure, at least I'm pretty sure that God doesn't want me sitting around worrying about dying. <laughs> he doesn't want that. He doesn't want me to worry, sit around worrying about being irrelevant. He doesn't, I mean, Catholics aren't supposed to do that. We Catholics are supposed to be joyful in the time that we're given. And I can't do that if I'm being hamstrung by my fears. Gratitude. Gratitude's a good feeling, right? (laughs) Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Feels better than uh, resentment. So uh, what is the lonely leader phenomenon? The lonely leader phenomenon is really interesting. You find that leaders are more surrounded by people than anybody else, and yet they're more likely to feel lonely than other people. And the reason has to do with the fact that isolation comes not from the number of people around you, but the quality of the relationships. Leaders tend to have a lot of deal friends and very few real friends. And so one of the things I talk about for strivers is they need to start distinguishing between real friends and deal friends, and they need to start cultivating the latter. They don't need to get rid of their deal friends, but sooner or later, their deal friends are going to get rid of them, quite frankly. I mean, like they say, when you leave a CEO job, and I can tell you this is true, having left AEI, you go from who's who to who's he in like six months. It's amazing, you know, how fast it is before people stop returning your calls. Um, and because, because your relationships are positional, they're, as, as, as Aristotle would say, they're transactional relationships. They're the lowest level of, of the virtue of philia. Is that based on mutual worldly attachments. You know, I scratch your back, you scratch mine. That's not exactly the basis of a healthy emotional relationship. And yet that's what a lot of them are. And, and that's what a lot of, of strivers, a lot of leaders, the syndrome that they face is not knowing that all of their friendships are, are deal friendships. And then what will happen is that the, the, the friendships they should have in their life, the relationships of joy and love, their spouse, for example, their children, a few close confidants, those things they, they just kind of fall apart. They, they're starved. And so I meet a lot of people and I, I tell stories in this book about a lot of people They get to a certain age and they say, I don't even know where to start with my wife. She barely knows me anymore. And now I have to, I'm leaving my job and I don't think anybody actually cares about me. And so this book actually walks through what the research suggests on how you can go from deal friendships to real friendships. And the good news is it's never too late. You absolutely can. I walk through the three or four steps that the research shows you can establish real friendships fast and enduring ones, and, and they're unbelievably satisfying and joy-provoking. Yeah. Uh, there, there's much more in, in the book. There, you talk about the, the, the Vanaprastha. Uh, I'll leave that as a, as a teaser for listeners. St. Paul, uh, forms of weakness becoming uh, mo- motives of strength. Let me, let me finish with a uh, sort of a personal professional question because when you're talking about the, the the leadership aspect you're there at the Harvard Business School you're the, you know those students are are the top 
uh, when you when you bring this into the classroom, uh, do you find that one they're receptive? I, I imagine that they're quite receptive, but they haven't heard this kind of talk before. They they really haven't. Um, you know, nobody says these things when you come to the Harvard Business School. I mean, this is not this is the the Harvard Business School of worldly rewards. And, and again, I mean, it's, it's a great business school, unambiguously, excellent education, intelligent yeah. students. But we need skills more than money, power, pleasure, and fame. We need skills on faith, family, friendship, and work. We need skills on how to serve each other, how to grow old well. We need the life skills of actual life satisfaction. And, and, and we need to share these ideas with each other. And this is, this is I teach a class called Leadership and Happiness, which is all of the skills that, that I talk about in this book. And and it's one of the most oversubscribed classes at the Harvard Business School, I have to say. It's one of the most incredibly, deeply satisfying things that I've ever been able to do and put together and to offer this up to the future leaders of our nation. And, and, and the enrollments are high. They're coming. Sky high. Sky yeah. high. I mean, hundreds on the waiting list. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, they're, and they're great students that are deeply involved in their own future as they study this material. The book is From Strength to Strength, Finding Success, Happiness, and Deep Purpose in the Second Half of Life. Professor Arthur Brooks, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Mark. Thanks to your listeners, too. And by the way, I'm a weekly listener to this program. Thank you for doing it year after year after year. It's really helpful to me. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.